0: Good morning, today's scripture reading will be found in Genesis chapter 34 starting at verse 1 and I'll be reading the whole chapter and if you're using a pew bible that will be on page 28 again that's Genesis chapter 34 starting at verse 1 going through the whole chapter now Dinah the daughter of Leah whom she had born to Jacob went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were not with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him, and he to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitful, deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters to you. we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold... The land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. Oh, who went out of the gate of the city? On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city. Well, it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's, it's finally here, and uh, let me be the first pastor probably ever to wish you a very happy Halloween. I don't know if you've ever had a pastor that's said that to you before, but I realize I have alienated maybe many of you by talking so much about Halloween these past number of weeks, and I promise this will be the end of it, at least for the next 11 months or so. I do think there is value in being spooked, in being scared out of our wits. I believe it's good to be shocked out of our comfort, to be rattled out of our complacency, and to be confronted with the danger that lurks around every corner. And just to be clear, I'm not here talking about ghouls and ghosts and goblins. I'm talking about something far scarier than any of those things. And if you want to know what is the scariest, then first of all, I have a song recommendation for you. Okay? You should add this one to your Halloween playlist. It, it would fit ni- very nicely between Monster Mash and Thriller. It comes from the Sovereign Grace kids' album, Theology. Theology. And it's called The Scariest Song. In it, Bob Coughlin, who's channeling, you know, Bella Lugosi here. He he lays out a bunch of options for the scariest thing around, and it includes things like dentist drills and creepy clowns. And he does all this before the chorus concludes. Sin, it's the scariest. Sin hurts everyone. Sin, how it hides in us. It's all the wrong we've ever done. It separates us from our God behind these prison walls. Oh, sin is the scariest of all. And it's a fun kid's song, but it's exactly true. It's not just for kids. It's true for all of us. There is nothing more disgusting, nothing more destructive or vile or harmful or repugnant than sin. And we spend a great deal of time downplaying it, you know, justifying it, dismissing it, desensitizing ourselves to it. And so I think it's a good thing that we would be made to stare sin right in the face and see it in all of its ugliness so that we might know it for what it truly is. And every so often in Scripture, we come to a passage that is so obscene that it can barely be read in polite company. Last week I was talking with uh, Titus and Noah about the passages that we assigned them for these upcoming months to, to read publicly before the sermon. Titus gets chapter 36, which I don't know if you can glance over at your page, but it, it's a genealogy, and it's basically 43 verses full of names and Hard names, very difficult to pronounce. And we were wondering last week if perhaps this was the most challenging scripture reading ever assigned in the history of Grace Baptist Church. But then again, Noah had to read chapter 34, which is just as brutal, let's be honest. Why is this even in the Bible? And even though it is, couldn't we just skip over it? Trust me, I, I'd love to. But if we did skip over it, we would be skipping over something that 2 Timothy chapter 3 says is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for our training in righteousness. So skipping over this passage would actually be to rob ourselves of an opportunity to be made mature and complete, equipped for every good work, if you can believe it. So let's not skip it. Let's hold each other's hands as we tiptoe through the, the haunted house that is Genesis 34. And let's take the opportunity, as I said, to to bravely look sin in its hideous face without turning away. Because if we can understand how how sin works, then we are going to be more apt to flee from it and to fight it and to seek forgiveness of it. And let's go slowly, okay? We'll we'll analyze sin in slow-mo so that we can see it at every stage of its development. And those th- stages are going to be the three headings that we'll use, if you're the note-taking type. These three headings are the three stages of sin's development, and we want to take a closer look at each of them. First of all, before sin, second, during sin, and third, after sin. Before, during, and after sin. We'll we'll look at each of these developments, to more fully understand this hideous creature so that we might fight it and flee it and be forgiven of it. Before sin, point number one, before sin. And under this heading, we'll want to observe some of the precursors to sin, some of the factors that provide opportunities for sin to seize upon. And you understand, don't you, that sin doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Rather, there, there needs to be some ideal conditions for it to flourish in. So just to get us starting along these lines, think, for example, of David's sin with Bathsheba. Okay, That might seem on its face to be just a standard case of lust and adultery. But in 2 Kings chapter 11, the narrator seems really keen to have us understand some of the factors that contributed to this downfall, to this failure. For starters, we read that it happened in the springtime, the springtime, which is a time when kings typically went out to war. But David, we're told, stayed in Jerusalem. And then... This, this uh, incident, this rooftop peeping, took place in the evening, the narrator tells us, after he had gotten up from his bed. So apparently he was napping late into the afternoon. And you put all this together, and it seems that the king's dereliction of his duty, his inertia, his sloth, all of these things paved the way for this sin with Bathsheba. And we have something very similar in the case of Jacob in this passage, even though the narrator here is not as explicit. This very important detail isn't so much in the text as it is in the context. But, so let's just ask ourselves this. Where is Jacob and his family when this horrific scene happens? And the answer is, in Shechem, but then we could ask, well, where should Jacob be? And the answer is at Bethel, 20 miles away. In other words, one day's journey away. This is not just where God commands him to go, and you can see that in verse one of the next chapter. You can see where, where God has to like, reset him and focus on where he ought to be Um, you can also see it in chapter 31 verse 13 but Bethel is also the place to which Jacob has vowed to God that he would return you can see that back in chapter 28 Uh, that that encounter with God at Bethel was such uh, such a significant factor in his life that he vows to return there Now, I don't know if uh, Jacob is a dollar late, but he is definitely a day short. He's, He's short on his obedience. He's chosen to settle in Shechem, which is pagan territory. And he settled there for a long time. If you do the math on all of this, it appears that it's at least seven or eight years. And this reminds us a little bit, it's, it's very reminiscent of Lot, who we saw earlier in Genesis, Abraham's nephew who settled near Sodom, we read. And then the next time we caught up with him, he was like living right on the edge of it. And then the next time we saw him, he, was, he had a house in the city, and he was part of the leadership of that wicked city. And Lot, we saw all along, was spiritually compromised as a result of his settling in Sodom. And here we have another patriarch, Jacob, who has settled in Shechem, and he's 20 miles short. Now he also is very spiritually compromised as a result. And I hate to, you know me, I hate to do this to you. I hate spoilers. I hate to skip ahead. But if you do, if you just glanced over at chapter 35, verse 2, and then verse 4, you'll discover that Jacob's family is acquiring, during the time of this settling in Shechem, is acquiring all sorts of foreign gods and earrings and rings and stuff that need to be put away. They're acquiring all of these things while they are among the Canaanites. Now when bad stuff happens, sometimes people chalk that up to being you know, at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that has connotations of like chance and, and fortune and whatever. But what if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time because of your deliberate disobedience. Friends, my point is here that disobedience is dangerous. Disobedience is dangerous. It puts you in a position where sin can flourish. And in Jacob's case, his stopping short of full obedience is putting his family in tremendous spiritual danger. He's putting his daughter in tremendous danger now speaking of dinah i realize that in the current climate what i'm about to do is totally unacceptable no doubt it's going to be considered by some as blaming the victim or some such thing and that's because these days we we want to think of victims as pure victims that they are in no way responsible for the horrible things that happened to them. And I, I get that. I, obviously, I, I understand the heart behind that. Obviously, abusers have, have no excuse whatsoever. But isn't it legitimate to analyze maybe some of the factors that might have put Dinah in this perilous position? I think the narrator would have us consider this at least for a minute. After all, we read in verse 1 that Dinah went out to see the women of the land. You have to understand that at this time, Dinah is probably 14 or 15. Um, and she here she is intrigued, even attracted, to what the Canaanite women were up to. She wanted to hang out with them. That She wanted to go where they went and do what they did. Very, very appealing and attractive to her. But these are the same kind of women that Jacob's mother loathed. These are the same kind of women that his father Isaac had forbidden him from marrying. The, the point is loud and clear. Stay away from these horrible women. They're ungodly and they'll be Uh, a, A drag on your spirituality. These are not godly women. These are not the kind of people that you want your teenage daughter hanging out with. Bad company corrupts good morals the proverb says. But once again this comes back to Jacob. Where is he? Why is he allowing his young daughter to go see the women of the land? Unfortunately, the way that Dinah is described here, first as a daughter, and then as the daughter of Leah, who is Jacob's least favorite wife, all of this is leading us to to think that Jacob probably doesn't care too much about Dinah. That he's certainly not taking seriously his responsibility to protect her spiritually and to raise her in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, The point is that Jacob's settling at Shechem and his negligence concerning his daughter is a disaster waiting to happen. Now we'll move on, but please just understand how dangerous disobedience is. Disobedience to the will of God, the clear command of God, the thing that you know that you must do, that you ought to do, if you choose to disobey that, think about the perilous position that it's not just putting you in, but it's, but it's putting your family in and those that are closest to you. So not only is your present disobedience sin, but you're actually creating an environment in which future sin can flourish. Parents, especially, we need to understand how potentially deadly it can be to be Derelict in our duty to raise our children in the fear, in the admonition of the Lord. How dangerous, how absolutely dangerous, and why the Proverbs would say something like, if we fail to do this, we hate our children. Our failure to discipline our children is producing a potentially perilous, fatal situation for them. You're setting them up to sin and to be victims of sin. And this is no time for complacency. As the Lord uh, warned Cain in Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Well, that's what we see before sin. That's before sin. Let's look in the second place at what happens during sin. And last week I mentioned that James, the brother of Jesus, is, is excellent at diagnostics. Okay, we reference James chapter 4 to help us understand what actually is going on when we're fighting and quarreling among each other. Well, in his epistle, James is also very helpful to diagnose what goes on during sin and temptation. And so we read in James chapter 1, verses 14 and following, but each one of us is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And we certainly see this play out in the young prince, Shechem. He's got the same name as the city. This is the son of Hamor, who's the king and as we're going to see, Shechem is a favorite son. Uh, his father rejoices in him more than anyone, which actually is, is a little bit of a, a hint, of a foretaste of what's coming when you have a favorite son. Anyway, Shechem is a favorite son, and Shechem, you can tell, is used to getting whatever it is that he wants. And the thing that he wants, in this case, is young Dinah. And when he sees her with the women, he desires to have her. And this is nothing other than the lust of his eyes. He, he's in the process right now of being lured and enticed by his own desire. And this boy is not in the habit of letting his desires go unsatisfied, unfulfilled. So we read that Shechem seizes Dinah. And that... That means nothing other than he does so forcibly against her will. He assaults her, and he defiles her, and he humiliates her. It's difficult even to read. And I want to just point out a couple of things about sin as it's happening in real time. First, I'm I'm struck by the construction of that phrase, he saw and sees. He saw and seized. It's very reminiscent of the first sin that we saw way back in Genesis chapter 3 where we read that Eve saw and took. And she saw that the tree was pleasing to the eye, that it was good for food, that it was able to make her wise. And you, you understand there that seeing is so much more than just having something pass into your frame of vision No, seeing is evaluating. It's essentially taking the the place of God and saying that something is good or bad or desirous or undesirable. It's making an autonomous, that is, I'm the guy that's making this evaluation apart from anything that God might say. Seeing is making this autonomous proclamation about something. It's when you say that something is good and right, you're doing that, you're saying that it's right in your own eyes without any consideration of what might be right in God's eyes, to use the language of the book of Judges. But not only is sin seeing, sin is also a a taking or a seizing. Shechem seized Dinah like Adam and Eve took and ate the fruit of the tree. In both cases, they took what was not rightfully theirs. They, they seized what they did not have the authority to take. Now, if this connection that I'm making with Genesis chapter 3 is valid, if I'm not stretching too much, then one of the, one of the benefits of that, one of the things that we can really learn from that is that we're not going to be able to just dismiss Shechem's sin as a particularly egregious one, something that I would never do. Rather, Shechem's sin is of the same form and substance of the sin that we all commit. From Adam all the way down to me and you, everybody sins by and by seizing. And then secondly, I want you to just notice how selfish sin is. The, the act that Shechem forces Dinah to engage in is an act that, we, again, we know this from our study in Genesis. This is something that God has designed for mutual self-giving. It's something that's intended between spouses in the context of a covenant marriage. But in this case, it, it's all about Shechem. You know, like who, who cares about Dinah? And listen to how the narrator describes what this then means for Dinah. It says that she was humiliated, verse two, treated as if she was a prostitute, in verse thirty-one. That's the the brother's analysis of this, and the narrator includes it as the last word, as if. Yeah, that's exactly what Shechem did. And she was defiled in verse 5, which means that she's made dirty, unclean. Her, the point is, her abuser had absolutely no concern for any of these consequences for her because he was only concerned for himself. And sin does this to you. It, it, it is exceedingly selfish. And when you engage in sin, you only have concern for yourself and not other people. Sin sees, it seizes, and it only serves self. That's what's going on during sin. And now let's look thirdly at what happens after sin. Obviously, you know, there's much more that could be said under these points, but for the sake of time, we... We have to move on to this third point. I trust that the stuff that I'm kind of glossing over is the stuff that the Holy Spirit would help you to think about a little bit later. After sin. And under this point, I'm interested in trying to catalog some of the various reactions that we find in the text to this heinous sin. And among the various characters of this story, we find a variety of responses. We can learn from all of this. First, and we see this in Jacob, is silence. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, and he held his peace. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. This was an absolutely horrible thing that had happened but apparently not so horrible as to shorten the workday and call the boys back from the field. And even when the boys do come home, having heard the news from some other party, Jacob is still not reported as, as saying anything at all. In this text, in this whole passage, Jacob doesn't say a word until the very, very end. And then when he does, his concerns seem to be very misplaced. It's his sons who do all of the talking, and the sons that do all of the acting in this passage. Now, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes wisely said, and this was recently, more recently reiterated by the birds which is that to everything there is a season. You know, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And when your young daughter has been defiled, certainly that is a time to speak. That's a time to act. Instead, Jacob is passive. This is apparently not enough to get him exercised, to get him up off his seat and moving. This is, the only thing that he does is, um, is in reference to the slaughter, like I said, at the very end of the passage. And, and his concern there is whether or not, you know, he, he, he has a fear now that the other neighboring... Tribes and countries are going to uh, want to destroy him as a result. So it's just fear for his own safety. That, that's where he speaks, when it concerns him. So to be more concerned w- what wicked men might do to you in the future than what wicked men have done to your daughter presently indicates, I think, grossly disordered priorities on the part of Jacob. Silence, and it's not right. This is a response doing nothing, saying nothing, and it's horrible. A second response comes from Dinah's 11 brothers. This is the response of anger or indignation. You can pick which word you want to use there. In verse 7, we read that somehow the news came to them when they were out in the fields, and obviously not through their father, but uh, this is the talk of the town now, and so word leaks out. And as soon as they heard, look at the text, it says, as soon as they heard, they came in because this is something that's more important than work. This is worthy of coming home from the field for. You know, sheep and goats are not more important than people than your sister. And notice how they came in, indignant and very angry. Now, how should we evaluate this response? It's exactly right. It's exactly right. There is such a thing as a holy anger, as a righteous indignation, and that response, that anger, that indignation is far rarer in our experience than it ought to be, but it does occur when, whenever our evaluation of something is in line with God's evaluation of that same thing. Okay, So the classic example of this is Jesus overturning tables in the temple and making a whip to drive out the money changers. And we ask, why is Jesus' anger justified there? And it is because it perfectly reflects his father's view about his house being turned into a shopping mall. Here's how you know that the brother's response of anger and indignation is justified because of the objective moral standards that the narrator reminds us of immediately afterwards. Just look there in the text. You'll see anger is totally appropriate because Shechem has done an outrageous thing. Such a thing must not be done. That is unequivocal moral language. These are moral imperatives that flow from the unchanging, eternal law of God. And when you are lined up with that law and God's character, then you're going to be angry at the things that the Lord God is angry about. Remember that God is holy, and He's righteous, and He's just. He's perfect, and, and He responds, if, if we can even use that word, He responds perfectly to every situation. What is God's response to sin? Anger, indignation, wrath. Psalm 7, 11 declares, without any hint of embarrassment here, that God is angry at the wicked every day. And we are, by reason of our own sinful nature, objects of his wrath and his mercy, of his wrath and, and his judgment and his fury. and rightfully so, we have transgressed his, his moral order. Human anger is entirely appropriate, insofar as it reflects divine anger. And by this standard, the brothers are to be commended, so far. And Jacob is found wanting. But what about you? And this actually functions as a good diagnostic tool to see if we're actually keeping in in step with the Spirit, to see if our values line up with the Heavenly Father's values. And so when you hear of some atrocity, when you, when you hear about some outrageous thing that's happened, something that must not be done, does it arouse any righteous indignation in you? Do you or, or do you just hold your peace? In, in the face of abortion or sexual abuse or drag queen story hour at the, at the library, are you incensed in a godly way? Or are you just silent? If, if seeing some political stunt in Virginia by some underhanded actors in a contentious election gets you seething mad, but you can, say, watch porn without even batting an eye. In, in industry, by the way, since we're talking about it, which is built on the exploitation of young women who have uninvolved, unconcerned, silent, passive fathers, an industry that is supplying the demands of your lusts, which actually makes you not significantly different from Shechem. When you're watching porn, are you not treating someone's sister as a prostitute? well, then that's an indication. If, if you're mad at the political stunt, if you're seething mad at that and can just look at the most atrocious things without batting an eye, well, that's an indication that something is really wrong with you. Your, your conscience needs to be recalibrated according to God's own standards. A third response to sin is something that we see in Shechem and his father Hamor. And I'm not exactly sure how to describe it other than with the word whitewashing. Whitewashing, I don't know, it's not great. It certainly involves unrepentance, but it's seeking to just kind of paper over the wrongdoing. It's a strategy that seeks to just kind of get on with life with actually, without actually dealing with your sin. So we, we discover that Shechem actually falls for Dinah and becomes um, attached to her. He speaks tenderly to her and convincingly to her. But that doesn't, make no mistake, that does not make right the horrible wrong that he has committed against her. And one little detail that doesn't come out until basically later on in the passage is that he's kept Dinah hostage in his house? Okay, this isn't just rape. This is like kidnapping. And he's still acting like the spoiled brat that he is when he demands of his dad, "Get that girl for me for a wife." Sounds like um, Samson to to his parents. Go get go get her for me. I want her. And so Hamor dutifully goes to to try to acquire her as a wife. He goes to do business with Jacob. And the conversation that he and his son, who's along with him, the conversation that they have with the father of the girl that he has just violated is astounding to me for its gall. It it contains no humility whatsoever, no repentance. The, this is the way of an abuser, to paraphrase a, te, uh, a passage of Scripture. He wipes his mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. There, there's no casting themselves at the mercy of Jacob and his sons. Rather, they're actually demanding more. Shechem wants Dinah for a wife, as if putting Dinah in a white dress is going to just whitewash everything. And, and while they're at it, why not just enter into an alliance where they can intermarry and, and trade and purchase land, etc. And as I say, the chutzpah, however you say that, is astounding. It's actually sickening. And yet that is how the vast majority of people respond to their sin. There, there's no admission of guilt there, there's not even any discernible embarrassment. So, so your coworker can regale you with, with the ongoing drama of of the guys that she's meeting and hooking up with on Tinder. And 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 far from being embarrassed about what that might say about her, she actually seems a little proud. You know, I. I don't doubt in that example that there's inward pain, there's, there's tremendous emptiness. But outwardly, it's like, let's just make the, the best of this situation and move on. That, that's the number one way that people deal or try to deal with sin. But needless to say, this response is deadly. Whitewashing when it comes to sin is futile. You know why? Well, it's like the hymn says, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Unrepentance concerning your sin is lethal. And not just in time, but for eternity. Unrepentance is going to land you in hell. A fourth response to sin is vengeance. And here we are, back, at, back to the brothers. And when we left them, they were responding properly in holy anger, in righteous indignation. You know that verse, be angry and do not sin? Well, that, that verse contains a command and a caution. You know, the, the, the command, which is be angry, which we've seen is, is good and right, reflects God's own response, but the caution, it includes a caution because the Lord knows that it's very difficult for fallen human beings like we are to actually be angry without sinning, to, to express our anger in a godly way. It's very easy for us to go off the rails and to, to go to extremes. To, to pursue a concern, not ultimately for the glory of God, but for, for our personal satisfaction and retribution. You, you know that, that a desire for vengeance is not necessarily wrong. Actually, it's good and right, and it's a, it's a good instinct, but personal vengeance and retribution is neither good nor right nor proper. And unfortunately, this is what the boys are after and they quickly concoct a plan it's, it's ingenious really you know they've learned from the, the best their, their dad this is the kind of thing he might come up with if he was involved and, and that's this is part of the problem because this actually really appeals to me I, I, I like this part of the story if I'm being honest I, I find my natural man just cheering for these boys who are sticking up for their sister, after all. What, what could be wrong with that? Uh, Reuben and, sorry, Levi and Simeon, who are Dinah's older, full brothers. They're both from, they both have the same mother, Leah. You can see that they're taking the lead in all of this, and they're, they're looking out for their sister. And that, 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 it's a nice thing. That's a good thing. I can relate to that. And what a plan they've come up with. What deception. To have these Shechemites submit to circumcision? Like, how do you pull that off? They pulled it off. And then, and then Shechem and Hamor go back, and they've got to try to convince their fellow countrymen that this is a good deal, and they're able to do that. And then when they're doubled over in pain... When it's hurting the most on day 3, they walk in and they slaughter every single one of them and I want to go yes. But actually it's no. No, because circumcision that's going to be what you use, boys. This this holy sign that a covenant God has given to you graciously as a reminder of his blessing and his promise to you, you're going you're gonna to use that holy thing to destroy a whole multitude of people? It's so perverse. Even that's perverse to, to, to just think about God's relationship with you, his people, as a tool for your own personal vengeance. Oh, that's, that's not good. As much as the natural man uh, responds positively to this, that is not positive. That That's taking the Lord's name and, and work in vain. James again says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it leads to more sin. More sin so that by the end, and I'm skipping ahead for the sake of time, by the end, what, what do we have on our hands? We've got mass slaughter. We've got plundering of property. We've got kidnapping. We've got slavery, no doubt. That's not good. I mean, the, the, the rape of Dinah is not good. It's, it's, it's not good at all. But how how do you answer for that ultimately? By slaughtering a multitude of people? That's not good. And and you think Jacob's absent in this passage. You know who else is? God. There's no pleading to the Lord of his people, pleading to him to to lead them and help them and and execute vengeance for them. No, this is all just, we're going to do this in our own strength and we're going to do it with our own deceit and the result is an absolute mess. How do you respond to sin? How, how can sin be dealt with? And, and I hope you're, you're at the point where you realize that any human solution to sin is going to be fraught with difficulty and even more sin. And so if you're feeling at that same place that the Apostle Paul is in Romans, where he's like, oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then you're, you're in a good place to hear the ultimate solution for our sin. What is the ultimate response to our sin? And again, like I think you might have an idea of what this might be. You ask a standard person off the street, you know, like are you going to heaven? They'll say, "Yeah," and you say, "Well, why I mean, why should God let you into heaven and they say well i you know I'm basically a good person i I've done some things that I'm not proud of, you know, but the the balance of my life is good, and I think God will recognize that and allow me to get into heaven. That's just standard response, right, but that is I, I don't think people have stopped to think how horrible of a thought that is. And you ask that same person, like take, take a, any story from the news where, where you see this young, privileged, um, Ivy League college student take advantage of some drunk freshman girl and leave her for dead behind a dumpster. And then he, you know, he has his day in court and the judge is, is sitting there behind the bench and he's like, yeah, son, I know that you did that, but, you know, boys will be boys. And I, I see that you're in the debating society, you're on the rugby team, uh, you, you help out with, with Boy Scouts. So, like, come on and You know, you're free to go. What, what do you say about a judge like that? That, that judge is despicable. That judge ought to be immediately disbarred. That judge doesn't know the first thing about justice. But yet, that's what you want God to be like for you when you come to the pearly gates? No, God can't, be, God can't do that and be true to His perfectly righteous character. That, that's not a God. That's an abomination. And so somehow God needs, to be, God needs to have righteous wrath and anger and indignation about the sin that we all commit. And yet, is there any way for us to receive mercy and pardon and forgiveness? And the good news of the Gospel is that there is. Because when He puts forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He he puts him forth in righteousness. And when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross with all of my sin and all of your sin imputed on him, on his shoulders, all, well, all of the wrath, the righteous wrath and holy indignation that our sins deserve is actually coming down on Jesus Christ and it's spent on him. The, the righteous requirements of the law are met in that glorious substitution. So I don't just walk away scot-free because my sin actually has been dealt with in a decisive way. It's just that it's been dealt with by a substitute. My Savior has borne all of my sins for me on the cross. And therefore I can, if I come in humility and repentance, I can be forgiven of my sins. I can be given his perfect record of righteousness applied to my account. Justice will have been served, but so also will have mercy and compassion and salvation and forgiveness been poured out on a sinner like me and like you. A passage like this is tough to look at. It's tough to preach. It's tough to hear. And yet it points us in a profound way to the one solid, lasting, eternal, glorious way of dealing with sin, and that is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that look will enable us all to be able now to flee sin, to see it for its, in all of its vileness, to, to flee it, to fight it, And then when we fall into it, to quickly repent and be forgiven of it. Amen? Amen. Amen.